to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. We started into this chapter last week. We got about halfway through, through verse 13. We're going to pick up in verse 14 this week. And I'm really going to do my best to get through the rest of the chapter. It is a dense one. There's a lot here, a lot for us to learn from. So we're going to dive into it. Back in a few verses before you get to 14, Adam has just sinned. He's just eaten of the fruit that was commanded to him not to eat of. And God approaches Adam after that sin as a heartbroken father, not as a cop out to get him. And we see that God comes to him and says, where are you? And I'm sure that he wasn't, you know, loud and booming, where are you? But he was soft. He was coming to him brokenhearted. Where are you? What did you just do? And some will say that there was something intrinsic about the fruit of that specific tree that was harmful to Adam's body. I don't think that's the case. I don't think the, the fruit was poisoned. Nothing like that. What made it harmful is this in verse 11. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? They broke the command of God. That's what was harmful to them. Eating a poisoned food of any sort doesn't mean that your kids and their kids and their kids will be cursed, right? They're not going to be sick from you getting food poisoning. Nothing intrinsic about this tree made it deadly. It was the fact that God commanded them not to eat of it that gave it deadly consequences. So that's what we're seeing in this passage. In response to God's line of questioning, Adam casts the blame on who? His wife. You know, and we haven't stopped since. But ultimately that blame was cast through Eve to God. That's the ultimate scapegoat, if you will. Adam blamed God. And that's not where any of us want to find ourselves in that position. But it's an easy trap to fall into. So God then turns to the woman and says, what is this you have done? Adam points to the woman. So God turns to the woman, says, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She went ahead and passed the blame onto the serpent. It was his fault, and I ate. And that brings us into verse 14, and we'll pick up here. I'll read through the rest of the chapter, and then we'll go back through it in more detail. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and the flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That takes us to the end of chapter three. There's a lot of dialogue from God in this passage. And in most of it, he's telling these three personalities, the serpent, Adam, and Eve, what the consequences of this sin will be. You'll notice that God dispenses their judgments in the chronological order that they sinned. He turns to the serpent first. Obviously, Satan's fall came before he started tempting Eve in the garden. So Satan sinned first. Then he turns to Eve, who actually ate the fruit first. And then to Adam, who took the fruit that he was offered by Eve. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. In verse 14, God is addressing this serpent. But in verse 15, it seems that God is addressing the spirit behind the serpent, which we know is Satan. And it seems that he addresses Satan directly there in verse 15. And in some ways, it's hard for us to come to terms with the fact that all of the serpents were in effect punished for Satan just using them as a tool. You know, it it may be hard for us to come to terms with that, but we must remember that God created each of the animals for a certain mode of life. You know, some on the ground crawling, the creeping things, some in the water, the sea creatures, some in the air, birds, different modes of life. And just because the serpent is now relegated to crawl along the ground with the other creeping things doesn't mean that it's any more apt to question God's choice in the matter. The snakes are no more capable of resenting their new lot than the moles, the the worms, the insects. Doesn't the potter have power over the clay? He can do what he wills with his creation. And this also could have functioned as some sort of reminder to man that since he was put in charge of God's creation, his actions affect the entirety of that creation. On your belly you shall go. The mere fact that God relegates 
the serpent to move around on its belly suggests that it wasn't that way before the fall. You know, they must have had some other way to get around, some other type of locomotion. It's been speculated that before the curse, these serpents in the garden stood upright. And this is a very unique thing in the animal kingdom, actually. There aren't many animals that stand upright. Um, Of course, we do. The monkeys do. And maybe a couple of other species. But it's actually a very unique trait. Some others believe that these serpents had some kind of ability to fly. And I suppose that's possible. I tend to think that they probably stood upright with some sort of legs. But the idea of flying is intriguing because there are cultures around the world, especially in the eastern part of the world, that seem to have a fixation on flying dragons, flying serpents, this sort of idea. And the nations in the east, especially China, we see this idea of a flying dragon in their mythology. So it kind of makes me wonder. I don't know. I don't know what you make of that, but it is interesting. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. We're not entirely sure what is meant by this, but on the surface, it seems to be talking about other creatures who were fashioned by God from the dust of the ground or other animals. So the serpent would eat these other animals who were also created from dust. And it could also just mean that they will eat these animals directly off of the ground because that's where they were. See, so a little bit of of mystery in that little phrase, but I think that probably covers it. Now, verse 15. Verse 15 is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible, in my humble opinion. It lays the foundation for biblical prophecy. And this is the first time that God mentions a coming Messiah. The first time. It really is an important promise and one that I'm sure Adam and Eve held very dear to their hearts. This idea of a redeemer, you know, someone who would defeat the serpent that had caused them to sin. Even though the future never seemed darker to them, God reassures them here that he has a plan. And he's always had a plan. And it's always been this plan. And we know that he has held this plan from before he laid the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 tells us that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Of course, God knew that Adam and Eve would sin. And when we look at God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, we tend to question why God would even create man if he knew that man would sin. You know, that's a question that we ask. The fact that God knows everything all at once tells us that God cannot learn. He already knows all there is to know. 
and therefore cannot add to his knowledge, which we call learning. So why would he create man if he already knew that they would end up rebelling against him? Well, first, you have to start with the more basic question, why did God create man? And that is before you add the complexity of the question uh, with if he knew they would rebel. So we start with this basic question. We can build on it. Why did God create man? Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through him and for him. Everything was created for him. That's not that he was lacking anything. As God, he is completely sufficient in and of himself, but he desired something. He desired fellowship with us. The short answer to why did God create us is for his own pleasure and for his glory. It delights him to have a personal relationship with you. And that blows my mind to think about. And since he created you in his image and likeness, it's possible for us to know him on that personal level. Why not stop when he created the plants? Why not stop when he created the animals? Because they were incapable of sharing a meaningful relationship with him like he created us to. We were made for his pleasure and for his glory. Now, God loves us, of course. That's the first thing that they teach you in Sunday school. God loves you. But in order for us to love God back and to make this relationship mutual, he had to give us the choice not to love him. Right, Because a relationship without a choice to be in that relationship is, for one, toxic, and two, it's not real love. Without a choice, we would be no more capable of expressing love than a robot who's programmed to respond in that way, right? And so enters the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was the choice to disobey God, to do life without him. And as long as they didn't eat of that tree, they could live forever in a close relationship with their creator. But they chose to rebel against him, and because of that, brought sin and death into his perfect creation. Now, there is a problem, because man's sin separates him from an almighty, holy God. And there's no way that man can repair that relationship. They tried making coverings of fig leaves, we saw last week. Man's first attempt at religion, religare, to reconnect. They were trying in their own effort to reconnect with God. We'll see later on in chapter 3, God says, No, it doesn't work that way. This is how it has to be. And we'll get to that. A substitutionary atonement. The death of an innocent animal. They brought sin and death 
into his perfect creation. They tried to cover themselves, but it didn't work. They couldn't repair that relationship with their creator. I know you probably never thought I'd get back to the original question, but if he knew this problem would come up, why did he create man to begin with? I want you to think about something, okay? Indulge me for a moment. If an almighty God wanted to communicate with his creation that he was powerful, how could he do that? One possible way is just through the creation itself. We know Romans 1.20 says that his eternal power and Godhead can be seen through his creation, through what he's made. Okay? If this same God wanted to communicate his eternality, his existence before time, how could he do so? Well, prophecy is a great way to demonstrate that he exists outside of our time domain. The Bible is full of prophecy. His word is full of prophecy. He writes history in advance. He demonstrates his eternality. Here's the real question. How does God communicate that he is loving? One more aspect of his character. How does he communicate that he's loving? How about by tabernacling among his creation and dying on their behalf? Asking for nothing in return except a relationship with them. Does that get the point across? Of course it does. Better than anything else could. Of course, his judgments are unsearchable and his ways are past our finding out, as Roman tells us, but we can begin to see a glimpse of God's heart in this. He wanted you. He wanted to display his love for us. Again, this is for his glory and he alone is worthy of that glory. You know, if I tried to seek glory, that would be woefully misplaced because I don't deserve glory. But if God seeks glory, that's perfect and wonderful because he deserves it. Even you in your finite capacity knew that your kids would bring you great sorrow at time. Looking around the room? Yeah. (laughs) But you also knew that they would bring you great joy at times, right? Why did you still choose to have kids if you knew that they would cause you sorrow? That is a good question. (laughs) It's a fair point. It all comes down to love, right? You loved them so much before you even had them. That's love. And the fall of man sets the stage for the most remarkable work of God, redemption even higher in importance than creation. And right here in verse 15 of Genesis 3 begins this scarlet thread that weaves throughout the entire Bible. You can pick you up a good chain reference Bible, and you can start in Genesis 3, 15, and you can trace it 
all the way through the Bible, through the redemptive work of Christ to the end. It's all interconnected. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the prophecy. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This makes me wonder, okay, if Satan thought he had won simply by drawing the loyalty of God's prized creation. This is it. I've drawn mankind away from God. Now they'll be loyal to me and with their ability to procreate, we will build a whole army of rebels. Was that his thought? I, I don't know. Maybe something along those lines because God clarifies to him, no, that's not how it's going to go. This is how it's going to go. There will still be hostility and hatred between you and the woman. There will be enmity. You're not going to be a team. You're not going to team up against me. There will be hatred between you two and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The King James says it a little differently. The King James says, it shall bruise thy head, referring to the woman's seed. But that's not what the Hebrew actually says. The Hebrew uses a masculine personal pronoun, he. And the New King James renders it properly as he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's obvious at this point, if it wasn't before, that the seed of the woman in view here isn't a what, but a who. The seed of the woman is no doubt speaking of Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent is speaking of the antithesis of Christ, Antichrist, the pseudo-Christ, if you will, the one that Satan will raise up in opposition to Jesus. I want you to notice, it says, he shall bruise your head, talking to the serpent. So the seed of the woman, he shall bruise the serpent's head. That is literally crush his head. And you, speaking to the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So in that last little phrase, God is not talking about the seed of the serpent. He's talking straight to the serpent, to Satan. You shall bruise his, Jesus's, heel. Even in this time of darkness, God steps in and says, no, there is still a plan. I still sit on the throne. Satan bruised Christ's heel on the cross, but there is still coming a day when the serpent's head will be crushed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We just looked at that in Revelation. This prophecy hasn't been completely fulfilled yet. Yes, Christ conquered sin on the cross, conquered death, but he has not yet bound Satan for good, and he will. Revelation 12 gives a great overview of the war between the serpent and the woman. 
And I'm not going to spend any time this morning going through Revelation 12, but I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the recording of that chapter to get a refresher if you're interested. It just outlines the history of Israel, basically. Uh, We see the woman in Revelation 12 is Israel, and we see the dragon, which is the serpent of old, Satan. So check that out if you would like. Now, after delivering this prophecy to Satan, God turns to the woman. In verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. If conception and childbirth would be painful after the fall, what would conception and childbirth look like before the fall? Now, we have no reference point for that. What do we have? Drive-through delivery stations? Just drive through, pop them out, and you're on your way? Is that what it was, would be like? We don't know. Of course, Adam and Eve didn't have any children until after the fall. So there's no record of any childbirth before the fall. I wonder what it was like. And it's interesting, on the same kind of subject... If you look at the angels, they were created as a host, a fixed number. They don't marry, and they don't have the capacity for procreation in their own realm. Okay? According to the record of Scripture, angels are males. There are no female angels. But humans were created and given the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Even before the fall, we knew that humans, Adam and Eve, had the reproductive capabilities because God commands them to multiply. So we know that was the intent even before the fall. So there had to be some system in place to make that happen. And we know that there was no pain, no sorrow, no death before the fall which would include during the process of childbirth, but we have no idea what that may have looked like. I'm still shooting for the drive throughs I think that would be great. But even today, of course, we see the pain. Of course, we see the travail in childbirth, but there's another side to it as well. There's a joy that comes with it. The moms in the room will tell you that it's worth it. I hope I'm right. Would you all say that it's worth it? Yeah. It's worth it. When you hold your newborn for the first time. Jesus encapsulates this feeling when he speaks to the disciples in John 16, 21. He says a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow. Because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Isn't that a good way to say it? I couldn't think of how to say it. Obviously, I've never experienced it. But I couldn't think of a good way to say it. So I went looking 
for a way to say it. And I found that. And there you go. Now, this next phrase confuses a lot of people. But it doesn't need to be complicated. God says, your desire to Eve shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. God is telling Eve that there will be a fight for headship in the marriage. Because of sin, the woman will desire the role of her husband as the head of the house. But it is God's design for the husband to rule over the wife. And please don't come after me. It's biblical. It's right here. The same phrase is used by God when talking to Cain in the next chapter, Genesis 4, verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Here it is. And its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. It's the same phrase, talking about something slightly different. God says to Cain, sin will want to rule over you, but you're going to rule over it. And to Eve, God is saying that in the context of marriage, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be friction. You'll want to rule over your husband, but he's ultimately going to rule over you. There's going to be that power struggle in your relationship. God tells us in his word what this relationship of marriage is supposed to look like. And there's plenty of passages that you can go through. Ephesians 5 comes to mind. There are plenty of places you can go to see what this relationship is supposed to look like. It's a constant sacrifice on both of our parts, the man and the woman. And it doesn't come naturally to sacrifice for your bride. I'm just being honest. It doesn't come naturally because we have this sin nature. We talked last week about Adam being treated by God as the head of the family. God didn't turn to Eve and say, where are you? What is this you have done? He turned to Adam, even though Eve had sinned first chronologically. Adam was in charge. He was the head of his family. And that's the role of a husband. Now, don't come at me yet because God also requires a lot from the husband. He calls us to love our wives like Christ loves the church. What does that mean? That means that we are supposed to love our bride sacrificially without expecting anything in return. That's the kind of love that Christ bestowed upon the church. Christ literally died for his bride. I will be the first to tell you, and Summer will be the second, that I haven't lived up to this standard yet. I haven't made it yet. But that does not move the goalposts. The goalposts are fixed. This is the standard. And this is what we're shooting for. This is still the biblical standard for husbands. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, and he goes on, but please don't make the mistake of taking this to mean don't listen to your wife. 
It's not what it's saying. You should listen to your wife. However, if your wife asks you to sin, to go against what God has already told you is right, don't listen to your wife, right? That's what happened to Adam. He did something that she told him to do that was against what God told him to do or not to do. That was the problem here. Summer has been counting the number of times she's been right recently. And let me tell you, it's been a lot. And that was the impetus for counting. She just lets me know, right? She's like, oh, there's another one. I was right. And I say this jokingly, but your wife really does have a lot to offer. And she has a lot to offer me. In fact, God does use your wife to get at you sometimes, just like he uses you to get at your wife. This whole process of marriage is a process of sanctification, right? God is conforming us into the likeness of his son. Okay, so the problem with Adam's situation is that his wife told him to eat the fruit which God had commanded him not to. So God goes on to tell Adam the consequences of that transgression. So now God is turning from Eve to Adam. And I've got a graphic for you that shows some elements of this curse. This curse on man was fourfold. First, sorrow. There was sorrow resulting from the futility, from entropy, as we'll see. The second is pain and suffering. There was pain and suffering that was signified by the thorns, which hinder man's ability to provide a living for his family. And then the sweat or tears of man struggling against this newly hostile environment. And the last element of this curse that we'll see in the following verses was physical death which would eventually prevail in every man's body. Every man from Adam forward would die, save for two, right? It's another topic. Physical death. Death would end up taking man back to the dust where he came from. And in Revelation 21.4, we see the consummation of this curse, the end of this curse, when God withdraws it. Let's read Revelation 21.4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, one of our elements, no sorrow, another one of our elements, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's what we're looking forward to when the curse is removed. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. This curse specifically falls on the ground. 
this word translated ground is also used for land and earth, the basic material of God's physical creation. It's all encapsulated in this word, Adama. This seems to be when the earth was subjected to the bondage of corruption that Paul talks about in Romans 8.21. We know that today as entropy. The second law of thermodynamics basically states that everything is going downhill. In other words, disorder is constantly increasing. And disorder is another way to say this fancy word entropy. The land that readily produced food for man before was now going to produce thorns and was going to be more reluctant to yield its fruit. The man would have to work the ground in toil to see any return from the land, whereas before God had set him in this garden that was already cultivated, that had already produced mature fruit for him to eat. Now he has to toil. Verse 19, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Of course, there is both a historical and a scientific truth here. The same elements that make up the dust are also found in man, in our bodies, And it's interesting to me that both secular scientists and Christians agree that man originally came from dust. Of course, secular scientists say that we were constructed from stardust through unguided natural processes, while we as Christians, believing in the authority of the Bible, would say that we were formed by dust by a very personal, creative act of God. So they're not the same thoughts by any stretch of the imagination, but both groups see dust as man's elemental origin, right? We both come from dust. And when we die and are laid into the ground, our physical bodies, our tents, are decomposed. And the elements that once made up your body return to the ground. No doubt, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return, is a very accurate statement scientifically. All right, I'm going to read this poem for y'all. It's called Reincarnation, and it's by a cowboy poet, Wallace McRae. Okay, bear with me. What is reincarnation? A cowboy asked his friend. Why, it's something that happens when your life has reached its end. They comb your hair and wash your neck and clean your fingernails and lay you in a padded box away from life's travails. Now this box in you goes in a hole that's been dug into the ground, and this here reincarnation starts once you're planted neath the mound. Now pretty soon the clods melt down along with the box and you who are inside, And then you're just beginning on your transformation ride. And then one day some grass will grow upon rendered mound until one day on your moldered grave a little flower is found. Then say by chance a horse should wander by and graze upon that flower. 
that once was you and now has become your vegetative bower. Now that posy that the horse done ate, along with all the rest his feed, becomes fat and bone and muscle, essential to the steed. But some is consumed that he can't use, and so it finally passes on through and just lays there on the ground, this thing that once was you. And then I seize this on the ground, and I wonder, and I ponder at this object that I've found. And I begin to think about reincarnation and life and death and such. And I come away concluding, old pal, why you ain't changed that much. (laughs) And that fit right in with returning to the dust. So I had to do it. I actually didn't plan on that, but I thought of it just now. So you're welcome for that (laughs) gift. I think it's hilarious. And obviously, reincarnation isn't real, but that was funny. Okay, we're going to refocus here. Verses 17 through 19. I want to leave you with this. Christ is called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Where Adam gave death to the human race, Christ gives life. By Adam's sin, all die. But by Christ's obedience, he makes us alive. I want you to think about those four elements of the curse as I read this excerpt for you from Henry Morris's Genesis record. So I've got the excerpt up on the screen too. If you can read it, you can follow along because it's a little bit lengthy. Think about those elements of the curse. But Christ, as son of man and second Adam, has been made the curse for us. Galatians 3.13. He was the man of sorrows. Isaiah 53.3. Acquainted with more grief than any other man. He was wounded bruised and chastised for us, Isaiah 53, 5, and indeed wore the very thorns of the curse as his crown, Mark 15, 17. In the agony of his labor, he sweat as it were great drops of blood, Luke twenty two forty four, and offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, Hebrews 5, 7. And finally, God brought him into the dust of death. Psalm twenty two fifteen. Christ, we see in the Gospels, epistles, and even in the Old Testament prophecies of his death, he became the curse on our behalf. And Henry Morris does a great job of weaving in those four elements of the curse and showing you exactly how Christ embodies those. He paid for the curse on our behalf. He became the curse for us. This whole epic started with a tree in a garden in Eden and was brought full circle on another tree and in another garden. The tree on a hill, the cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Starts with the tree, And it's finished with a tree. 
Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is actually when Adam gives his wife a name. He starts calling her Eve. For the first roughly three chapters, any time that the Bible references who we know as Eve, it just refers to her as the woman. And until now, when Adam calls her Eve, meaning life or living, she was referred to as the woman. And if this follows sequentially right after God pronounces the curse on creation, then Eve would not yet have had any children. And so we see the faith of Adam here. He's giving her a name based on what she would be. Looking forward to the day when they would follow God's command by populating the earth. Evidently, Adam knew that mandate and intended to follow it. And in that intention, he named Eve for who she would be, the mother of all living. I think it's cool to see, even in this stage in Adam's life, there's that faith there, that what God said would come to pass. 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. In order to clothe the man and his wife in animal skins, an animal would have had to die. This would have been the first time that they had witnessed death. I'm sure it was a very memorable experience for them. I'm sure that they did not soon forget. And so God reaches down and demonstrates this basic truth to them, that their sin required death. The fig leaves that they were using to cover themselves would not be sufficient to cover their sins. But the blood of an innocent animal had to be spilled on their behalf. From the beginning here, sin was accompanied by death. And I believe that's part of what God is trying to show them. Hey, this is the consequence for your actions. Sin requires death. Even here from the beginning, God is communicating this all-important truth that the wages of sin is death, which the law would expand on and Jesus would eventually fulfill. This loss of innocent life to cover their sins was the first picture of substitutionary atonement. Jesus dying in our very place. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And right there you get a snapshot at the Trinity. Us. It's a plural. To know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Revelation 22 tells us that we will someday have free access to that tree of life. That is in the New Jerusalem. But that's after we've received our glorified bodies and we've entered eternity. Imagine if man, 
in our current fallen state got our hands on this tree of life. We ate it. Living forever in this fallen state. Look around. You know, look at the news. And imagine being stuck in this insanity forever. Obviously, God doesn't want that for us either. So he takes away our access to this tree when Adam sins so that we couldn't eat of it. Again, he's not putting these rules in place to keep Adam and Eve from having fun, right? He's acting as a loving father would, putting in place rules that are intended for the protection of his children. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As I read these last two verses, I want you to pay attention to the verbs that are used to describe God's action in kicking them out of the garden, okay? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. Sent to drove out. What does that tell us? At first, it seems that God asked Adam to remove himself from the garden. But Adam was reluctant. He kind of drug his feet a little. And God had to drive him out. I'm sure that Adam wouldn't have wanted to leave. Of course, it was a place that God had specifically prepared to meet Adam's every need. A wonderful place, I'm sure. But Adam couldn't stay. And so, I imagine Adam being driven out of the garden, stepping out into an empty, fallen world where decay had already begun to work. It seems that entropy started off very quickly, very strong, to bring creation down into a fallen state, and then it kind of evened out throughout time. And we see it today as sort of a slow, nagging process process of aging, process of decay, things breaking down. There were no humans on the planet besides the man and his wife. Talk about loneliness and talk about having to cleave to your spouse. That would be the ultimate test, being thrown into a barren world with nobody else besides you and your spouse. They had to fend for themselves and eke a living out of this ground that was now hesitant to produce for them. Wilder Smith believes at this point, God drives man out of eternity and into time. He thinks the answer to why is there suffering begins right here. It's suffering that drives man back to his creator. If he had left us in the garden where every need of ours was met, 
would we feel the need to come back to him? Something for you to chew on this week. Of course, we look at this passage and we don't see Adam immediately keeling over dead, but there is immediate death. The truth is that he did surely die, just as God said would happen. Even physically, he began the process of death immediately. And each one of us, the moment we're born, we begin to die. He began to age, and his body began to deteriorate. But, even more importantly, he died spiritually. There was a spiritual death that happened immediately. His fellowship with God was broken, and he was separated from his maker. A holy God, and now a sinful man, and a great chasm separated the two. He had sinned. He experienced what we call, and the scripture calls, a spiritual death. And this is why Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about being born again. You can find that in John 3. And that's the conversation in which the famous verse, John 3.16, occurs. Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And we commonly use this term, born again, but I'm afraid that we don't always understand what it means. When we're reborn or regenerated, as some would say, we become a new creation in Christ, completely made anew, not just kind of buffed up, you know, shined, put a new facade on, but we become a new creation. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.16, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The problem goes back to Adam's sin. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's from Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Being born of the flesh, the first birth, makes us children of Adam. And we share in his corruption. We need a second birth, a spiritual birth, to become children of God. The term sons of God is used of three groups. The first is angels, direct creations of God. Adam, a direct creation of God. And born-again believers, direct creations of God by this new birth. People, before they are saved, are never called sons of God in the Bible. Beneha Elohim in the Hebrew, which we see over and over referring to angels. Every time that that term is used, it speaks of a direct creation of God. And it's used of the born-again Christian. A direct creation of God. And I rejoice for that because our silly little fig leaves are not enough. It took the death of God himself 
in our place. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. I rejoice for that. What a gift. What a gift it is that he would allow us to come back into fellowship with him after rebelling against him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we had done anything, while we were still hostile to the gospel, to God, Christ died in our place. That's the wonderful news that we celebrate. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to close our study there this morning. Next week in chapter 4, Cain and Abel. And we're probably all familiar with that story, but there are some nuggets that we get from the New Testament about this chapter 4 in Genesis that we don't actually have in the, the text itself from Genesis. So we'll see what the New Testament authors have to say about this event. And there are some interesting parallels that we can draw from the Septuagint. I'm excited for that, and we'll see how that goes. If you would, please pray with me as we close this morning. Thank you.